I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The news is a little crazy around here. Oh, because you have a new mayor? We have a new mayor, so that's local. The city of Louisville had two shootings this morning. In the schools? No, one was at a bank, and I don't know where the other one was. Okay. And... There was a big article about how Clarence Thomas violated a bunch of ethics rules by taking for 20 years vacations, one of which cost about $500,000. A vacation or 20 years of vacations cost $500,000? 20 years of vacations on private jets and yachts. Oh. Yeah. So there's just a lot. I've been on Twitter most of the day and puttering with the script. That's how I spent my day, puttering with the script and then seeing what I missed on Twitter and then puttering with the script and seeing what I missed on Twitter. I did work out this morning with my personal trainer, so that's good. Welcome to Oh My Lord, a podcast about Chicago history you didn't learn in school. My name is Alyssa, and I am joined by Mona. Hey, Mona, how are you? I'm cool. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've been on a journey with Streeter. I just talked to my coworkers, the Streeter story. And I have to work things out about how I feel about this man. (laughs) I'm going through it with the streeter stuff. Are you ready for some streeter shenanigans? Sure. Let's go ahead. When we last left streeter, the district of the Great Lakes had had an Independence Day, which was thwarted when a hundred cops showed up and arrested people. That was where we left streeter. All 14 of the inmates are charged with unlawful assembly which carries a max fine of $100. The total bail was $140. Now, you might be wondering, why didn't they charge them for heftier crimes? 
the thought is that the rich dudes just didn't want this to go before the courts. This event creates a contextual shift for both sides. For Streeter, having almost two dozen supporters makes him believe or has him start believing that he is, in fact, an advocate of the people. And to be fair, I think about two dozen people showed up to support Donald Trump in New York last week. He could be onto something. For the rich dudes, they are starting to see him as an actual threat, like labor movements, rather than a con man. A few days after that, they burn every last remnant of the district. Now we are into the year 1900. And a little context on what was happening in Chicago in the early 1900s, or the year 1900. On January 2nd of that year, they opened what is known as the Sanitation and Ship Canal, otherwise known as the reversing of the flow of the Chicago River. On a political level, the city was trying to get voters to care about aldermanic corruption. The Streeters are lying low in Englewood. Remember William Niles, who Streeter met in Washington, D.C.? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. He's taking the reins here, and he's not even faking that he owns the units, but he's still selling them. And, yeah, he's not even faking it anymore. On January 8th, Niles meets with the Streetervillians, and they agree to levy a $5 tax on themselves. I look at it like a bond initiative because he said it would go for education and other infrastructure items. Okay. Instead, he bought weapons and two small boats. Nice. Yeah, yeah, good. Good Chicagoan politician at heart, Niles and his crew, begin organizing on the south side around 66 and South Princeton. And on May 25th, Niles provides a, a captain, like a real captain of the USS Michigan, an open letter outlining all of Streeter's claims. The thought was doing so places this issue under federal jurisdiction. And I don't know what the letter said, but I'm telling you, I'm getting some Frank Costanza Festivus vibes here. I'm imagining Streeter just like ranting all of his grievances. So that was on May 25th. The following night, 13 men and some hired mercenaries from the Spanish-American War load two boats. Uh, yeah, I know. So far back we're going over here. This how far back we're going, but we, they, they've got the mercenaries now. And they load two boats with the following items. Sailboat masts, bags of beans, meat, canned good, tin wash basins, shovels, axles, rifles, and ammo. They then travel up the Chicago River into the lake, and they land at Superior and Lakeshore Drive. The first thing they do is they just make a ton of racket. They just make a lot of noise to let everyone in the area know they're there. A police officer was like, should I go check this out? The police department said, probably wait till there are more people. The next day at dawn, the Lincoln Park cop, George Irby, is determined to put this to an end. He approaches the encampment, but 
the squatters, they rise from their, oh, I forgot to mention. Okay, so after they make the noise, they build trenches in the ground, 12-foot trenches. So they're all laying in the ground in these trenches. And Irby comes and he's approaching, and the guys jump out of the ground, grab the reins of the horse, and turn it around. And then they further frighten the horse by just shooting a few rounds in, into the sky. Irby retreats. Enter our friend Barney Bear. He's coming in a buggy. And Niles fires a shot at him, maiming the horse. Bear retreats. Next, Niles shoots towards Detective George Hyatt. One bullet pierces his coat and hits a 14-year-old boy in the knee. Bystander John Murphy tries to drive through with his daughter in the buggy, but Niles whips his head and shoulders with the end of his rifle. Normal stuff. Yep. It's worth noting that this is much more violent than any of Streeter's actual antics, and there'd never been bystanders involved before. Send a message to Governor Tanner who was in town at the time, but he refuses to call in the National Guard. Acting Mayor Walker orders the creation of the Marine Police Unit. And Assistant Chief City Attorney Colin Fife, along with 15 officers, board a chartered steamboat and a fire tug. We now... Wow. What? I said, wow. Yeah. We now have the genesis of the Marine unit, and they're getting ready to go by water. On the shore, there are rumors radiating that 600 cops are lining up for a raid. Before noon, two of the men defect. It's not going well for these guys right now. Enter another Lincoln Park policeman, William Hayes, and he's a good old boy, but good old boy, like down to earth. And he calls out, Say, fellers, cut it out. They sensed him to be, if not sympathetic, at least trustworthy. Niles sat down and they talked things through. Hayes de-escalates the situation and the trespassers turn in their weapons. Which is a turn I did not see this taking. Well, most of them did. Not Niles, who was, according to the Tribune, Pounded up severely before the detective finally obtained possession of his gun, and three more followers in the General Malie received some hard knocks. We now have some police brutality here. It's great. Wait. All, all in all, the invasion lasted a little over 12 hours. According to Klatt, Niles and a half a dozen other men were kept in the county jail for weeks before a jury acquitted them of assault and lesser offenses. And perhaps jurors could not forget that the millionaires were leaving Streeter's claims undeveloped as if admitting they could not prove ownership. So we're now into the summer, and Streeter is back, and he is seeing a surge in sales. Now, you might ask, who the hell is still buying units of Garbage Island? Mona? The Chicago, I'm here. Yeah. Did you say something? No, I'm saying I'm here. Yeah, I'm listening. Okay. Uh, 
it was, we might ask, who, who the hell's still buying this? The answer is the good old Chicago Police Department. The Tribune reports that they had 30 undercover cops who used more than $200,000 of tax mayor money. It was a sting operation. Uh, worth noting, I looked up what $200,000 is by today's standards. I don't think we need to go on. We, we started at the millions. This is a sting. They put some money behind it. Obviously, this is the end of the line. No. They never filed any charges. The speculation is, again, the rich dudes still don't want the courts to be involved. But I just want to underscore that the Chicago Police Department spent the equivalent of $7 million on real estate fraud and never did anything with it. Wow. So that's why it's taking so long because there's so many things that I'm just like, I did not see that coming. And I'd read the book. I'm like, oh, Streeter is staying at the Tremont and basking in the publicity like a Kardashian among a scandal. He claims he would soon be exposing Alderman Henry Palmer, that's Potter Palmer's son, claiming that Palmer didn't live in the ward that elected him, but rather he lived in the district of Lake Michigan. On September 2nd, 1901, in the middle of the night, Streeter and 15 of his followers return. They bring tents and set up camp. The police just stand down and say, as long as he behaves himself. Much like Washington, D.C. initially on January 6th. Uh -huh. One squatter is a guy named Billy McManners. And... Billy's kind of muscular, but not very smart. And he has a wife and a kid, but nary a dollar. Streeter treats him like a son and offers him a unit for free. And they've been gone for a long time. So some of the people who have bought, who become the actual owners, have started to fence off their property to keep Streeter out. And Streeter's people respect the fences. They don't mess with anything that's fenced off. Which is cool, except... They almost immediately begin wholesale dumping. They turn it back into a garbage island. The Chicago Record Herald wrote, It's dump heap and stagnant water have been a nuisance. Stench and mosquitoes have been its two steady products. What are your biggest exports? Stinking bugs. So there was a woman named Louisa Healy. She lived on the south side in the mansions, but she was keeping abreast of what was happening on the north side. She just wasn't happy with Streeter. I don't know her motivation, but she wasn't happy with him. But it's also worth noting that Trash Island has its largest population yet. And Streeter builds, it was either a windmill or his version of the Eiffel Tower. I'm not sure uh which one. He's ordered to remove it. Streeter moves it three feet, which infuriates this Healy lady 
and she acquires evacuation orders. On September Ooh, 20th, mm-hmm. yep, we got people, new people getting infuriated yeah. here. Yeah. In so on September 20th, a police captain tells them that they need to be out within six hours from hmm. flat, replying from his horse-drawn lumber wagon. The captain declared that street superintendent Doherty be damned. This is my home and I am here to stay. I get it. It's his home too. He's a rascal and he's a bully, but it's also his home. However, yeah. Six hours later, the cops arrive and most of the residents just bolt. Streeter tears up the order saying, there ain't no law can touch me. He is, again, arrested, and the garbage is taken to the dump. This next part is complicated, so I'm just relying on Clatt. According to Clatt, just before dawn on October 5th, 1901, he mounted the first of two wagons that had been abandoned at the dump and gave order to roll, if only in a whisper or a gesture, under a dishwater sky. His score of bodyguards were ready to jump out and start to boiler hat McManners with his muscles dwarfing his boiler hat held the reins of his mule driven covered wagon jostled inside as the wagon rolled over lumpy landfill where his family a few squatters a load of lumber and a bagpipe oh bagpipe I have no idea why they have a bagpipe (laughs) that's what you did back then yeah (laughs) I love that note. I used to be like a speaker system, like a boombox was a bagpipes because you'd make all kinds of noise. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess if you're trying to be disruptive, you're going to have the most disruptive thing you can have. Clatt goes on to say, Streeter must have wanted the police to believe he had given up and, like the Mormons of Southern Illinois, was striking out for faraway land. The caravan rattles across the Rush Street Bridge and went to the virtually empty Lincoln Boulevard. Unprepared, police dispatched every available officer with a riot call. The police are getting ready for a riot. Remember how I said McManor's not too bright? His wagon gets stuck. When the police officers try to capture him, his wife throws her arms around him which requires four cops to physically remove her from her husband. A moment later, she returns brandishing a gun. Oh, here we go. Ultimately, the cops let McManners go if he promised to stay off the land. He heads down Chicago Avenue, leads him to believe he's leaving, and he returns. The cops let Streeter stay, but they arrest McManners and they remove his wagon. Oh. Yeah. Now, an alderman named Meatwagon, M-I-E-W-A-G-E-N. He pays McManners fine and bought him some used shoes, which is a nice little touch so now streeter has a shack of guards and a tent 
for his bodyguards. He's got guards that are guarding the island, and he's got his own bodyguards. And his bodyguards in a tent. And the tent has, and I'm using air quotes here, a sign that says, Marshall's Office, Dist of Lake Michigan. Bodyguards ain't cheap. According to Klatt, when Streeter could not meet his payroll, his marshals deserted en masse. This ended the last real hope of turning his scrap of a landfill into a residential district for ordinary people. Maria's reaction to the guard desertion was to enter a Clark Street basement saloon. When the bartender refused to serve her, she went up the steps, kicked out all the street-level windows, and wound up in jail again. So things are not looking good. Remember the Southside grocery? Turns out the Yahoo who sold it to him took a down payment and Streeter still owes him money. This guy's name is Arthur Bliss. It's thought that Arthur Bliss may have wanted to acquire some of the land claim. But yeah, just an interesting little side note that he never paid for, really paid for his grocery store. You know what this story has not had so far? No, but you're going to tell me. A crooked alderman. I would. Enter Edward Cullerton, whose nicknames include Smooth Eddie and Foxy Ed. Foxy Ed, yes. We should just never elect aldermans named Ed. It's a problem. Uh, it seems like he was also interested in utilizing Streeter's claim to the land. He buys a plot outright and then hires McManners to guard it. He builds a shack and then he exercises his power to keep it from being torn down. I'm not going to go into the whole side story of him, except for his involvement is critical in what's about to go down. The recorder of the U.S. General Land Office serves as a witness in a grand jury investigation into the Cleveland fraud case. January 31st, 1901, Streeter is indicted, or as Donald Trump would say, indicated, on fraud. He did not resist arrest. Remember, remember Henry N. Cooper, the guy who was hired to spy on Streeter? Streeter has guards, so Cooper hires three of his own guards. Samuel Protein, George Wall, and John Kirk. On February 6th, there is a shootout between the guards. Ed calls them all together and tells them to play nice. Streeter goes down and he files a complaint against Cooper. The complaint gets dismissed because no one knows out of these guards who pulled the gun first. But this really is it for Streeter. The system is not working for him. Meanwhile, the alderman announces plans to build a hotel in that area, which is giving Streeter some cred. But due to backroom deals, the plan gets withdrawn in about a day. I don't remember that specifically, but it was a very quick turnaround. On February 12th, 
we have another shootout. Boom. Yeah. This time, Kirk, who was working for the rich dudes, he ends up dead. Oh. And Streeter is arrested. June 26, 1902, he is convicted of assaulting Cooper, but let off with a warning. One of the things that's really taking over America media right now is there's the no cash bonds and people are being let off. They're saying there's violent criminals are being let off on bond. Mm. They just let Streeter off on a warning while he's waiting a murder charge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if Fox News existed now, it could go either way. It could be a hero or not. So this. I don't have enough information about, but this just makes me so happy. He acts as his own lawyer during his murder trial. Mm-hmm. Isn't that like a sign of a genius or a sociopath or something? Sociopath. Mm. It's not a good idea. It's really not a good idea. And it went, the tidbits I saw from it, it went the way you would think Streeter acting as, as his own lawyer would go. And... The question was from the case is if the armed men were protecting his property, the focus shifted from the murder to was it for lack and a lack of a better word, a stand your ground thing. So the focus shifted to trash Island and Hmm. yeah, the jury's deadlocked. Oh, according to Clatt with no home left, and no chance to sell other people's land, the Streeters decided to raise defense money by going into vaudeville. Uh-huh. Here we go. Now again. Clatt goes on to say, capitalizing on curiosity aroused by the shooting, they plan to recount their story in a 10 to 15 minute act on the regular bill. But just after signing the contract, Maria was hurt falling off a streetcar. She tried minimizing her injuries because she and the captain did not have money for a hospital. Interesting. Yeah. But she so has money for alcohol. They had money for alcohol. They're just wasting money at some point now because they're making, they're, they've been making money on and off throughout the scheme. December 2nd, Streeter is found guilty of manslaughter. They couldn't find him guilty for murder because... They don't know who owns the land, but it was definitely manslaughter. He's now facing life in prison. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's not sent to Joliet. They keep him in Chicago so he can be closer to the court for his appeal process. Due to her streetcar injuries, Maria dies on February 11th, 1903. Oh, man, because the streetcar fall. The streetcar fall. Oh, I know. It's all right. Is that, man, is that the way she wanted to go out, though, with that potty mouth and that temper? That's how she wanted to go out? Sucks. Yeah, it's, I didn't include the details. The book actually goes into a lot of details about her final moments, and it wasn't good. When Streeter hears about it, he says, I hope they are satisfied. He now blames the rich dudes. Oh. 
He is allowed to attend her funeral, which is held at Holy Name Cathedral. She got a ch- she got a church funeral. Yeah, my boy. now Streeter, and I don't know at this point in time if he has a lawyer or he's still defending himself, but he heads to Joliet. He's in jail, and our story isn't done. So you might be wondering what the hell happens. A black attorney named William G. Anderson visits him, suggesting that they they use an 1895 law allowing a felon convicted of something other than murder. They must receive a parole hearing within a year of their conviction. He's like the Johnny Cochran of the day. He's the Johnny Cochran of the day, and he's a dude. You should have gotten a parole hearing within a year, but he didn't get it because he remained in Cook County Jail. Oh, yeah. So he agrees to pay Anderson 30K if Anderson's successful. If the, the Streeterville Johnny Cochran is successful, he gets 30K. Streeter gets a sympathetic judge, and on November 4th, 1904, he is released on a technicality. At this point in time, Mona, can you tell me what are laws? Why do we have them? Yep. Just so that lawyers have something to play with. It's got to be that. Like, like Abraham Lincoln was like, we're going to make these laws. Because he was a lawyer. Yeah. Notably, he has fans in the courtroom. And one of them is a teenage girl named Mary Collins. Yeah, there we go. Yep. She claims to be much younger, but she was probably about 19. And she has designs on Streeter's land claim. Hmm. Streeter scurries from Joliet to the South Side. Two months later, he marries Mary in South Bend. Why not? Why not? Another Mary, right? He's a 63-year-old man who washes his beard in ammonia. Yep. That might be hot for somebody. Tremolia. <clears throat> I thought of you. Where did I go today? I went somewhere. I was at Walgreens yesterday and it smelled like ammonia. And I'm like, God, I'm never going to smell this again without thinking of Captain Streeter and his beard. Mm-hmm. The Anna Nicole Smith of our story immediately starts. <laughs> keeping, she immediately starts keeping a journal chronicling what are cries of abuse, including that he threatened to kill her. Yeah. Yeah. She goes to a lawyer and the lawyer's, yeah, this is too transparent. You you can't use this. She leaves town without ever filing for divorce. Wow. So this is the third wife, right? This is his third wife. I think he's a common denominator now in terms of who's the shittier partner. He might be. She clearly wanted to get her hands on his money, but. All the while, the development is still happening, and the neighborhood needs a name, so they settle on Streeterville. Like, that was an official idea. This guy who's been the bane of our existence, let's name a neighborhood after him. And, and, that, and that'll be a good idea. Nice. Also, around this time, city officials, including Walker, started looking for ways to expand the narrow residential district formed by Lincoln Boulevard, Astor Street, and the Lakeshore Drive into a true Gold Coast. 
the shore could be graced with public beaches that would eventually line the eastern edge of Chicago, outclassing every other city in the Great Lakes region. But there was, as yet, no legal assurance that the expanse would be protected from the clutter, congestion, and pollution of commercialism. Architect, Mm. yes, architect Daniel Burnham appeared before 57 of the city's most influential citizens at the commercial club with a general plan for transforming the underused shore from the state of Indiana line on the south to suburban Evanston on the north into a region of boulevards, beaches, and recreational facilities. As he would say later, make no little plans. They have no power to stir men's souls. Ooh. Huh? I'm going to be a Burnham stan here because I'm a Burnham stan. What eventually became the 1909 plan, what I want to really point out here to anybody who's listening to it, is it assured that the poor and the rich had the same access to parks and beaches, which was not the case in all urban planning. New York. Wow. There's a whole thing about how New York, they, they built highways to keep poor people out of the parks. Now, Streeter is staying in a hotel in South Bend that's owned by one of his patrons. So he now just has patrons. He meets 30-year-old divorcee Alma, who he calls mom. He is a 60-something Yosemite Sam lookalike with questionable hygiene. Later that year, Streeter marries for the fourth time. Ah. I'm betting when you... When we started this, you're like, you didn't think we were going to get two more wives. He feeds her just a load of bullshit, including that he made his money selling copper and brass objects dredged from the lake, which would imply that he worked. He re- that he also told her that he received nearly 60 code violations in a single day and that he had been arrested 200 times. If a guy came to me, he's like, yeah, I've been arrested 200 times. I wouldn't be like, can we put a ring on it and make this legal? In the line of red flags, that's a pretty red flaggy one. <laughs> like, the only thing that would make it worse if he was dressed like the burglar. He's apparently obtained a boat called the Carrie J, but it sinks. And this ends his dream of sailing from South Bend to Chicago. In 1909, Streeter and Alma returned by automobile, claiming ownership of all 186 acres of the Gold Coast. Wow. Clat. As before, Streeter approached potential buyers with his glad hand and scatter shot legal terms. He managed to sell 50 or 60 people at an auction he arranged in his stolen automobile slash home slash real estate office. (laughs) This is why sometimes I just take Clat's quotes because I can't say it better. Collette goes on to say, police did not stop him as long as he informed buyers that the deeds could only be secured after a final court ruling on ownership and the legitimate owners never, ever pursued the issue. And things were back to normal, except that the captain, 
had shaved off his beard as a favor to Elma, whose name he finally yes, whose name he finally shortened to Ma. He kept the mustache. Wow. This is not a real estate podcast. But if you were buying deeds of land from someone conducting business in their vehicle and they tell you they might not own the property, you should keep your money. Straight up. Streeter, I had this image. Streeter is the 1909 equivalent of the Nigerian prince. He's a hustler. He's a hustler. And he must be, I was looking at it in a, Trump has raised millions of dollars since he announced he was getting arrested. How was that? People are just donating to his reelection campaign. Nice. On the fact that he was getting indicted, which is the only same lunacy I can see between people still giving Streeter their money and people giving Donald Trump their money. And that is where we're going to end today's episode. Okay. You have any questions about anything? No, but um, I'm impressed that he shaved his beard. What? That he married another Mary. And that while he had a lot of money, Mary couldn't afford good health care services. No, Maria, Maria Maria was the second one. Mary was the third one. I don't remember the name of the first one. But it was also an M name. Oh, nice. Yeah. And that's probably why he went, he shortened Alma to Ma. Yep. So it's easier for him to remember. Because at this point, how old is this homeboy? Like, how old is he? He's in his, he was 62 when he married Mary. He married Ma shortly thereafter. So six, mid, and yeah. It, maybe he's just like one of those men that can't ever be alone. Yes guys like and i know there are women like that but there are guys that just slide from one marriage right into the next marriage and you're like whoa yeah the ink isn't even dry on the divorce yeah yeah a couple things just before we one of the things and why i'm drawing all this out is one of the things is i in my research would hear that he had two wives or four wives And I wanted to really draw out that it was four. That's one of those things. And the other thing that's common in the lore about Streeter is that he went to jail for tax evasion. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. He went to jail for manslaughter. Which I feel like these details are actually way more colorful than the lore about him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Does it help you in any way? Are you getting clarity around something with this guy's story as it relates to, like, America, men, Chicago, Walmart, rich um, people? I was talking to a coworker of mine, and I'm like, yeah, I feel like Trump is, like, streeters like Trump. And my coworker's like, he was just a bully. The other thing, and this kind of does go back to what we talked about last week, and I had an interesting conversation with somebody when the Clarence Thomas stuff came out, and mm-hmm. it's that there's certain structures that we didn't have, and then we had them, and now we don't seem to have as much 
respect for the structures. One of the things, so Clarence Thomas takes these private plane gifts and a rule that came out, I believe, after Nixon was president was that every federal employee needs to report if they're riding on a private plane for free. And he's just, Clarence Thomas is like, I was told I didn't need to talk, do that. Like, I didn't need to disclose that. It's fascinating. And I have a feeling this is probably very similar to what Chicago was like with Streeter. It's fascinating watching the justifications of letting someone off the hook for failing to do what they were supposed to do. And all because you align with them ideologically. It's a fascinating thing to watch. And I think it's been happening more and more. I just feel like we need to have structures in place or if we have structures in place and systems in place that everyone needs to follow them. And that's one of the things that I was mad about Streeter is like, there's no, like, why have laws if you're going to let a felon out on parole after one year? Which is not to say I think that people shouldn't have parole, but it's like, why have the laws? I hear you, girl. What? I said, I hear you, girl. Yeah. Why have the rule in not enforce it? Which, by the way, just to be really clear, for me over here, like Clarence Thomas not disclosing this information is putting the legitimacy of the court in question. And the Sun-Times had a really good op-ed about it. It's the optics. It doesn't even matter if it influenced him. It's the optics of it. He's always been like in a way where, oh, I did a thing, but did I really though? I don't know. He's always been a little shady. Oh, he's totally shady. And we let him get away with that before. And, and listen, he's not the only one. It's just the one that's in the news right now. So I can think of it. It's the integrity paradigm that like once, once you start to accept 80% integrity, then 70 doesn't look so bad. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And then the next thing, like the metaphor is you clean your room every day. And then there's one day where you don't make your bed and put your laundry away. And then you're like, the next day you don't. Next day you've got like a, like your own little trash island of laundry in your bedroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you got to de- donate like a whole half day to cleaning up the compile of piles. Yeah. I think why I'm triggered about this too. I brought up in episode one, the Bundy Ranch. With Clive and Bundy. Yeah, I am. And then I read about his uh, son, Eamon Bundy, did a takeover of a wildlife preserve. And the media on the right made it sound like they're heroes. But meanwhile, there are high schoolers. Meanwhile, there's that thought. But what's happening now is that there are high schoolers who are protesting they want gun control. They want it. And if you hear it, it's like violent and chaotic. And it's we can't pick or choose. We all have the right to protest or we don't. And by the way, we all have the right to protest. That's why I just have such a complicated relationship with Streeter. I don't know why. I did not think 
I was going to have this complicated relationship. And maybe that's what makes the story compelling is there are no good guys and there are no out and out bad guys. Right. And that's also what life is like. But we try to, at least in America right now, put everybody into the binary of good or bad. Oh, yeah. But when and, you get into the weeds and you understand the details of the situation of the story, then it makes more sense. Yeah. It's and it and it goes back. We discussed the mayoral election, and I was discussing some of the special concerns in Chicago. And it's a very nuanced conversation to have about Chicago and disinvested neighborhoods. There's not just one solution to it, and people have to be able to have the willingness to delve into the nuance of the conversation. And a lot of people, I don't. I'm, Somebody can at me about this. I don't see a lot of nuance happening. Okay. Yeah. I'm also having fun with the story. The guy should be a movie. This should, this, forget H. Holmes and Devil in the White City. They should turn Streeter into a movie. (laughs) Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a positive five-star review. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.